there are certain inventions that we encounter in our lives that change how we think, how we, um, how we go about our world. Um, the automobile, for example, changed how people traveled, that they weren't stuck in the area in which they were born, that they could move to different locations and work different places. And there's other inventions that when they were created, people didn't understand how powerful they were and the potential that they had within themselves. And one of those great inventions was actually this little thing right here. I'm not talking about the cell phone, but just the phone in general. Did you know that when the phone was created, that people didn't want it? Did you know that? When Alexander Graham Bell started his, his telephone company and offered this product to the world, people thought, you know, we look back on it now and we can't imagine a world without our phones. I mean, you walk out the door and you feel naked. Like, where's my cell phone? And I think teenagers today are suffering from this, uh, a disease called, I, I need a charger so I can charge my phone. I'm only on 2% disease. Uh, even yesterday I was at a wedding and I had people walking up to me in the wedding going, Pastor, do you have a cube for me to charge my cell phone? Because we are consumed having this thing charged and with us at all times and we feel naked without it. It's become such an integral part of our lives. But yet when the phone was first introduced, people didn't see the need for it. Uh, which is crazy to think about. But it was exactly the way that it was. People thought they had letters. They didn't need to talk to someone on the phone from far away. It didn't marvel them. And I would have marveled me. I can't imagine growing up in a world and hearing someone's voice from far away and knowing it could be that close. But do you know what? enabled the phone to take off? World War I. When World War I occurred, suddenly people wanted to hear about what was going on um, at the battlefront. And so they wanted to hear about what their loved ones were going through. And so they, they, they started clamoring for the phone, and then that began to grow and take off. And that changed the world. And there are many things and many companies, these startups, if you will, that seem small at first and offer something that the world kind of tilts its head and looks at. But once it really begins to, to be taken a hold of, it changes the people around and changes how we live and move and have our being. And that the startup that is changing the world today is God's church. That we are given the responsibility of going to the nations, of sharing Jesus with other people, and embodying within ourselves the very gospel of God. And so today, we're going to look at this book of Acts. And it's sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, but I think that that's actually a very poor label for it, a poor title for the book. It's better to be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And this is the second book. This is the, the first book that had been written was by Luke. And Luke had written about all that Jesus said and did and talked about the finished work of Jesus. And then he documents what the earliest followers of Jesus were doing. This new startup that was going into the, to the world and changing it with common, ordinary men and women like you and me. They didn't have a lot of education, they didn't have a lot of money, they didn't have a lot of resources, they didn't have a great ancestry per se, but they knew who Jesus was and God had changed their life and invited them to help him change the world. And so today we're going to look at that and see how God has invited us to participate in this divine startup. And as we jump into this, I want us to ask ourselves, are we or is God using us to change the world and how can we know that? But are we truly embodying and feeling as we, that we are participants in this startup and making a difference in the world around us for the glory of God? But before we go any further within this message, I want to stop and ask God by His Holy Spirit to stop and speak to us 
that we might, we might be able to consume the full truth of what God is saying and laying forth in His Word, that we might be changed, and so might the world, for His glory and our joy. Let's take a moment to pray and ask Him to bless us. Heavenly Father, You alone are God. You have given us Your Word to teach us, to instruct us, that we might take and eat of it, that it might go into the depths of our souls and transform us from the inside out. Lord, Your Word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it is cutting us, and it's profitable, it's, it's living, and it's used to rebuke, admonish, train, exhort, and show us the truth of who you are. And so, O Lord our God, I pray that the words today might be amplified on our souls because of your Spirit working through it already. But Lord, we know it's through the foolishness of preaching that you are saving those who believe. And so today, may I be a fool for your name's sake, and may your wisdom be proven to be life-changing and transformational for our hearts that we might see how we might engage in this divine startup for the glory, honor, and praise of your name and the extension of your kingdom all over the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's jump right in. This, this is a pretty fascinating book. I'm extremely excited to be in this series because it captures a, in snapshot form what exactly transpired after Jesus left earth. And the author of this book is Dr. Luke. We call him Dr. Luke because he was a physician. He was half Greek, half Jew. Uh, He was a convert to Christianity, and he was a a historian of sorts. And he he is writing to this man named Theophilus. And look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus, except that he's referred to in the introduction of Luke and Acts. But from those accounts, we can presume that he was a believer in Jesus, and he was probably a wealthy Gentile, perhaps a, uh, a dignitary or official politician of sort. Because in Luke, he is called the most excellent Theophilus, which was a Latin term only given to those who were called procurators or lawyers. And so he was a benefactor, probably funding Luke's missionary, uh, missionary journey to gather information about who Jesus was and how the early church came to B. And he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, as we said before, this book then is the extension of Luke's first message. And that's the first point that I want you to write down in your notes. This is a startup that's changing the world because it's an extension of what Jesus did and it's showing how it connects into our everyday lives. So it poured forth from Jesus, and now he's saying, in my first book I wrote about what Jesus said and did, this is what happened to the earliest followers, and in transitioning that, he shows how the message has even gone on to us today. But it's an extension of Luke's first message. And it's based upon, notice what Jesus, it says, what Jesus began to do and teach. What is it that Jesus did? Well, he died on the cross, yes, but it's what he did in everyday life and those around him. See, this book seeks to root his, our understanding of who Jesus is in his miracles. Jesus was unlike any person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. He healed the deaf, the lame, the blind, the demonized, 
He even raised the dead. He demonstrated power over nature. He turned water into wine. He withered a fig tree. He multiplied fish and bread. He walked on water and calmed a storm. And to top it off, he died and rose from the dead. So we see that it's rooted in his miracles. But it's not just the miracles. Some people just want the miraculous of Jesus. They want the experience of Jesus. But we understand that the miracles were meant to support the message. That's the point of it. We see this in the book of Mark. After Jesus had done all of these miracles, he'd withdrawn for a period of time to have some time alone with his father. The apostles are trying to get him and say, Jesus, you're a rock star, baby. You're a rock star. Come on, let's go. You want to build this following? You get to get more followers? We're going to fill your Facebook account. We're going to totally increase your Instagram. Everything, we're going to increase your media attention. We are your media machine, Jesus. And he goes, that's not why I came. That's not why I came. I didn't come to be a sideshow. I must go to other towns and preach this message. That's what he came to do. And this message, I mean, what was this message? Who was this man? His message was that he was the savior of the world, the one who was the Messiah who had been prophesied. Now, when we talk about Jesus, we all have different ideas of who Jesus is in our minds. Now, let me tell you, this is your options for who Jesus is. Either he's a nut job, he's a crazy guy. I mean, think about it. If Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sin, if you walked up to someone and went, your sins are forgiven, you are set free from your infirmity, what would you say to that person? I've had people come up to me and they say, I am Jesus Christ. And I say, you're nuts. You need help. You're crazy. And Jesus is crazy. He can't just be a moral teacher and a philosopher. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed that he would would die and he'd be able to resurrect himself from the dead. Only someone who is nuts would say that. So he's either crazy or he is one of the greatest con men of all time. And we've seen this. There are a lot of religious charlatans out there today, people that are just out to get your money. And a lot of them are on Christian TV stations, and they have shows. When I hear teachers like this, I want to throw up. I remember hearing Creflo Dollar. He stands up and he goes, God told me that I'm to get a $62 million jet. No, he didn't. That's not what the gospel's about. And they're like, well, brother, maybe God did tell him that. God says to help the, the poor, the lame, the sick. Didn't ever tell me anything in Scripture about getting a $62 million jet. And think about all the people that can be influenced and helped by that. He's out to get your money. A lot of these religious teachers are out there to do it. They won't report how much they get, and they're not helping people. They say they are, but they're not. Some of you might be familiar with the couple Tim and Tammy, I mean, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. They were in the 1980s. They had this network called PTL, which stood for Praise the Lord. And they were getting all this money from people watching their shows, and they promised blessings that people sent them in their money, and they spent their money on crazy stuff. I'm talking about gold toilets and air conditioning for their dog. This is how nuts they were. And finally, he got busted for tax evasion, went to prison, and he said in prison was the first time that he had ever read the entire Bible. This is a man with a ministry to millions. He'd never read the Bible his entire life. And then he gets out, and he says, I'm changed. He starts another TV show, and what's he doing? He is selling food for the end times. And people are buying it. And some, one guy, I read an article the other day, he, had bought, he bought some of it just to see it. And it was disgusting. But they're making money because that's what they're doing. They're out to be charlatans. Was Jesus then a con man? Was he a charlatan? Was he a person that was just trying to get your money? Try to build a following? Show how powerful he was to get crowds? No. 
So either he's crazy, or he's a big giant con man, or he's a children's fairy tale. He's a children's fairy tale, a little bit like Santa Claus. And his legend has grown over time. I'm amazed at Santa Claus. I really am. This guy who is, again, built on a historical figure who was a, a good man, and it grew and it modified over time. Now that if you're at a school and you speak out against Santa Claus, the kid, the one kid, I remember hearing this story just recently, the one kid spoke up in his uh, grade school class and he said Santa wasn't real, and they sent him home rather than because he hurt the feelings of the other children around. Because they all believe in this cosmic... i got to be careful what I say right now. Heavy set guy with a big beard and wants to give presents to children. Now again, it's, it's, it's neat, but Jesus is not on the same page as Santa Claus. He's not. And so he's, is it a legend that's grown over time and it's gotten embedded in the culture that now we can't talk about it? Is that who he is? That he's just this guy who healed maybe a couple people and the miracles and the stories got bigger and bigger over time until it got into the Bible and it exploded in people? Is that who he is? So he's either a, a total crazy guy, he's a con man, or he's a children's fairy tale, or maybe there's one more. Maybe he's actually who he said he was. He's Christ. The one who was prophesied since the beginning of time that would come and change the world, whose coming would inaugurate the last days, who begin to change hearts and minds, who would change how people think, how they interacted, what they understood, how they could be freed, throwing down barriers. He came on a mission. But see, his message and his miracles were all validated by the resurrection. The resurrection is the hinge upon which the door of Christianity turns. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. He is a fairy tale. He's a moral teacher. But it's the resurrection that changed everything. And that's what we see within this passage In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given, meaning he had risen from the dead, he had showed up to the apostles, given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them, verse 3, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. See, he had come on a mission, and he was handing off the mission, the baton of that mission, to his followers. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? What was the purpose of it? You know, the scripture says it's multifaceted. Let me give you a list of why he came. He came to inaugurate God's kingdom, and the fullness will be seen when he comes again. He came to seek and to save those who were lost in their sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil who had blinded people and imprisoned them in their sins and in their sufferings and in their guilt, in their false religion, in their idolatry. He came to ransom himself for many, to give himself to save others. He came to display God's glory. He came to absorb God's wrath to please His heavenly Father, to learn obedience and be perfected, to show God's love and grace for sinners, 
to cancel the legal demands of the law against us, to take away our condemnation, to provide the basis for our justification, to bring us to faith, to abolish circumcision, to fulfill the law, to make us holy, blameless, and perfect, to give us a clear conscience, to obtain for us all things that are good for us, to give us eternal life, to deliver us from this present evil age, to reconcile us to God, to give us access to God's presence, to bring the Old Testament priesthood to an end, to become our eternal high priest, to free us from our slavery to sin, to enable us to live for Christ and not ourselves, to make the cross the ground of our boasting, to give marriage its deepest meaning, to free us from the futility of our ancestry, to create a people zealous for good works, to free us from the bondage and fear of death, to secure our eternal destiny with him in heaven, to unleash his power in us, to destroy racism, to disarm the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm, to secure our own resurrection from the dead, to ransom a people from every tribe and language and people and nation, to gather his sheep from around the world, to rescue us from the final judgment, to gain his joy and ours forever, and to crown us with glory and honor, and to show that the worst evil can be met by God for our good. He was coming to set up a kingdom, one that would be slowly and under... It begins slowly and under the surface, but one that would grow until it encapsulates every people group on the face of the earth. That's why he came. And see, what we have done is we have denigrated or made it down to just praying a prayer and getting them into heaven. It's so much more than that. That we are to embody within ourselves the kingdom of God. And we, he was sent on a mission, and then he unleashes us on that mission. But it becomes because of his resurrection. See, that's what we under, have to understand is Acts records the startup that is changing the world and it's rooted in the evidence of his resurrection. That's where it comes to be. Again, without the resurrection, we have absolutely nothing. The resurrection is what changed things. The resurrection is changing him from a, just a religious teacher, a guru, and made him and showed that he was the very son of God. And it, took, it, made it, it impregnated everything that he said. I mean, everything he had said and taught was pregnant with meaning that is birthed with the resurrection. It's the resurrection that changed things, and it's the evidence of his resurrection. Now, you might be a skeptic and say, I don't believe this stuff. I don't, I don't believe it. Now, let me try to lay out a case for you, if you just give me a moment, to explain the resurrection and what the evidence was that showed that he really rose from the dead, and this just isn't some religious thing that people made up. Here's the evidence of his resurrection. First of all, it's this. There was the empty tomb. It was seen in the empty tomb. That's the most obvious one. Now, you might say, oh, well, it really wasn't empty. I mean, how do we know it was really empty? Well, let me, let me talk about that for a moment. After he was resurrected from the dead, immediately the word went out that he had been resurrected. Where did it occur? Now, the, his death burial, uh, and burial had happened in Jerusalem. This is ground zero for this movement. Now, if you're going to start something that's a lie, I don't think you want to start it in the very environment in which this occurred and which persecution was the thickest. And so these people, though, were transformed right away. And and matter of fact, Jews had to even concoct a story. They admitted themselves that the tomb was empty, and they came up with a concoction that he his body had been stolen. So that's what they said, meaning that he we recognize that he's not there, okay? So because they stole his body. So even they, who are unbelievers, are validating by proposing this argument that he had been resurrected or that there was an empty tomb. 
And some say, well, his body was just hidden away. His disciples took it and hid it because they loved him so much and they didn't want people to know he was dead. Well, everybody knew he was dead. But if his body was being hidden, someone would have turned them in because the danger was too great. It was capital, the, the punishment was death for someone who stole a body from a tomb. And not to mention that Jews had tried to concoct this story. But another part of this empty tomb that helps us support it is the fact that the Gospel of Mark is the earliest gospel account, which was written almost, you know, uh, it's based on sources that were written seven years after the resurrection occurred. Meaning that there were people that were alive that would have been able to say authoritatively, he didn't rise from the dead, the tomb wasn't empty. You can't have something that is validated and people believe if the eyewitnesses are around and it, and it contradicts their testimony. But this didn't. It validated it. So even here, we have this reliable source. And you might say, well, there are other books that talk about Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead, and they don't put it that way. Yeah, they're right. There are d- books we call spurious, meaning that they weren't ever considered to be the Bible. And there is one that's a little bit crazy. It's called the Gospel According to Peter. And in this Gospel According to Peter, it has this crazy account of a cross walking out of the tomb and talking. Okay, this is not dependable. This is dependable. And he's saying that these aren't just fanciful tales. All the people recognize that this is exactly what occurred. And not to mention, they didn't build a shrine to his bones. If the body would have been there, and especially in this culture, especially in Jerusalem, there were 50 such shrines that were concocted to venerate a holy man. There's no shrine there because his body wasn't there. So the empty tomb, that's the first evidence of his resurrection. Second evidence was that of the eyewitnesses. There were people that saw him. What, not just an image of him, not just a dream, saw him. And John... In the book of John, after his resurrection, John takes great care to say that Jesus ate with his disciples. He didn't just appear. He wasn't just a dream or an apparition, not just a vision. But there were eyewitnesses, several, the Bible records. First was Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, verse 10 through 18. And then the women accompanying her in Matthew 28. The 11 disciples, excluding Judas, because remember he was dead, including Thomas, who was invited, by the way, when Jesus sees Thomas, who had doubted. I mean, these guys, we think that these people were primitive in their time. These are pretty educated in, in that they, they understood if dead person was dead. They knew what that meant. So when Thomas says, okay, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. You guys are crazy. When Jesus appears to him, he says, here, Peter, I mean, here, Thomas, here's my side. And the word he says, put your finger in, it literally means Plunge your finger into me. In, like literally into his body to show that he's really resurrected from the dead. I mean, this is a credible thing. And he says, oh, Lord, my God. I mean, he recognized that this was the risen Jesus. And then you have the two men on the road to Emmaus that Jesus appeared to and talked with and explained about himself through all of the Old Testament, through Moses and the prophets. And then you have over 500 disciples at one time in 1 Corinthians 15.6. And then to the Lord's brother James in 1 Corinthians 15.7. And finally to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.8-9. So you have the eyewitness account. And then you have the enemy's response. The enemy's response, or the enemy here. When, when, and here's what I mean by that. Whenever we are talking about history, we have to look at who wrote about the event. It's often the winners who have defined the historical story or narrative. Their account would win the day. But here we have something very interesting. From an outward perspective, Jesus lost, and Rome and the Jews won. 
But when we read about Jesus' body being missing from the tomb and the Jews declaring that it had been stolen, it actually strengthens the argument for Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because of the, this thing called the Nazareth inscription that ordered capital punishment for anyone who stole a body from a tomb. That's important because it shows the ludicrous notion of Jesus' followers stealing it. Why would they have done that and then say we, he was alive when they knew he was dead? Especially if they knew that they were to, if they were to be caught with his body, they would be executed. The fact that the Jews had to come up with an alternative doesn't weaken the argument for the resurrection. It strengthens it. And then there are the embarrassing details. And what do I mean by embarrassing details? Well, it's embarrassing because it's from a historical perspective. From our modern-day perspective, we don't pick it up. But from a historical account, it's a big deal. The first witness to Jesus' resurrection was Mary Magdalene. Now, that's significant because she was a woman. Uh, Now, in our culture, that's not a huge deal. But in the Greco-Roman culture, a woman's testimony was considered half that of a man. And I'm not saying that as a means of supporting it. I'm just recording it and reciting it to you to see the perspective that was there at the time. So if there was one man, two women had to testify against it. The fact that he is putting this divine thing right in front of her and he's giving this woman to be the opportunity to be the first witness of Jesus' resurrection. If you were trying to create a false religion, you weren't, wouldn't begin with something that was controversial right off the bat. You wouldn't do that because other people would have rejected it right away unless it was true. The only way you would do that is if it was true because it actually was God's way of actually validating and elevating women within the society. So it's a pretty cool thing. Embarrassing details. There's other embarrassing details. I mean, think about it. You're one of the followers of Jesus. Do you want everyone to know about the worst moment that you've ever had, like Peter denying Jesus? Or Mark running away buck naked? because he was so afraid, or all the disciples deserting him right away. These are not details you want included, unless that's what happened. And the only reason they would want them included is to show how God had transformed and worked in spite of it. So these are rather embarrassing details that are included, which actually support the resurrection. And then you look at the early church practices. There are two main church practices we see, baptism and communion, and both of them have the resurrection in them. Baptism talks about being dead to sin and coming out of the water, which just like Jesus came out of the tomb. Or you have communion, which we're to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, which we do and observe until when? He comes again. So both of them have an understanding of the resurrection in them, and the early church was practicing it because it was all about the resurrection. So you have these early church practices that we see that were already embodying what the resurrection was. And then you have the external sources. You might say to me, well, okay, Travis, that's what the Bible says. The Bible is writing and is written to support itself. So it's really a circular argument. I believe it because the Bible says it, but uh, that's what some people say. But if I don't believe the Bible, then it just keeps supporting itself, and I don't don't agree with that. I think the Bible is not the Word of God. Okay, well, let's take that argument for a moment. Let's take the Bible out of the equation. What can we learn about Jesus then by just looking at historical historical sources from that time? We learned that he, he lived... He did miracles, he died, and he rose again. Just from looking at historical non-believers writing about it. That tells you something. Pretty amazing, actually. And And that's found in Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, not a believer. It's found in the Latin, or in the Roman Suetonius, as well as Tacitus. All these are historians. You can look them up. 
You can read, they're talking about Jesus who had died and was reportedly risen again, and that was controversial. So we're just looking at the earliest historians, and they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And then last of all, you see the evil that the disciples went through. How they suffered, how they died. I mean, you see them in the book of Acts, and we're going to get this in the next few weeks. They are bunkered down in the upper room, fearful at the governing authority, the Sanhedrin coming in and killing them like they killed Jesus. They are terrified that they're hiding from these authorities. But we see them later on in the book of Acts, standing in front of the very authorities they were afraid of, testifying, knowing that they could possibly be killed for it. What would lead them go through this transformation. If they were to believe a lie, I mean, would you die for a lie? No. You wouldn't die for a lie, and these guys wouldn't do so either, but they'd seen the risen Jesus, and that transformed their entire perspective, and that, again, is another evidence that supports his resurrection. We have to remember that. Now, what does all that mean? It means that the resurrection is real, and everything else that's coming out of this is rooted in that. And it's extremely important for us. It means it's real. Now let me ask you the question, what does the resurrection mean to you? What does it mean to you? You know, it's been said that people miss heaven by six inches. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. But that you can get something in your head and not in your heart. And you miss heaven because you got it in your head, but it never transformed your heart. So you have to have this truth. It has to be transformative for every single cell of your life. So we see this evidence of his resurrection. Now, notice what happens after he had risen from the dead. His last words to his disciples. He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The 11 remaining ones. Remember, Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, had killed himself. Now there are 11 remaining. He has, his slot has not been um, filled yet, which will be soon by Matthias. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Again, touch me, see me, know me. Here, look, I'm eating. I'm right here. I'm physically me. I'm not just a vision. Uh, I'm right here with you. Appearing to them during 40 days. 40 is a significant number in Scripture, by the way. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus had been tempted for 40 days. 40 is a very significant number in Scripture. It usually means a period of, of testing and speaking about the kingdom of God. He gave them commands, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke a great deal about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was inaugurated or began to be realized in the hearts of men and women as the Holy Spirit broke through and confirmed the message of Christ and will be fully realized when Jesus comes again to deal with evil. Until then, we are to be agents of his kingdom, going forth to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey the commands of Christ, how to love, forgive, sacrifice, serve, how to deal with racism, how to deal with the most vulnerable, how to treat them, how to affirm dignity in people, how to help the poor and the weak, how are we to use our money and how we do our jobs, how we organize our families, treat our spouses. These are all responsibilities of those who are Christ followers and who embody within themselves God's kingdom as they seek to die to themselves so that Christ might be seen within, within and through them. Now here's what I mean by that. We have pared down Jesus until we get to write to the salvation message and it's accept it, reject it, and that's it. That's what we've pared it down to. But that's not what the gospel talks about. 
The gospel talks about, yes, receiving Jesus in that now he comes within you to set up residence in your life and you are becoming a citizen. You have become actually a citizen of the kingdom of God and you embody within yourself the gospel. The good news of Jesus, which is seen in how you sacrifice, how you serve, how you organize your life under the reign and rule of Christ. You are, we are to embody the gospel of God. That's what this is saying, is we are to be a participant and to be engaging in this divine startup. That's what God has called us to, is to engage, to be a part of this, to, be, to, to follow me. That's what Jesus says. If anyone wishes to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He doesn't say, by the way, just sign your name here, raise your hand in the service, and that's it. No, take up your cross. Your life is committed to me. You receive what I have done on the cross, and then your life is a response of holy obedience through him for life. He's invited to engage in us in this divine start up to reach the world. And God understand that this God understood that this task is completely impossible on our own. It's impossible on our own. And this is why he gave us a promise. See, God has given us a promise. He said, you can't do this. You can't reach all the people of the world. That You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your own power. You can't do it by yourself. And I'm going to send you a helper that's going to do this. And he says here, he tells them to wait for the promised one who was to come. Presented himself alive, talks about the kingdom of God. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So wait for the promise of the Father. Now, he had talked about this promise. Remember, this is Luke writing. Luke had talked about this promise previously in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 8 through 12. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples. And I'm sure this is all making sense to them right now. As they're seeing the resurrection of Jesus, they know that he's gonna, he's gonna, they're going to go forth and suffer great persecution. And Jesus had told them this. He says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now here we go. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as I understand it, is rejection of Christ's lordship and his messiahship ultimately at the end of life. That's the rejection. That Remember, he's, the Holy Spirit comes to bear witness about him. You reject that. That's ultimately what sends you to hell, is your rejection of who Jesus is. But then he adds this to them. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you would defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So they're freaking out. Okay, we know that we're going to have to go testify, and you made a promise we need to help. Who's this helper, this Holy Spirit you talked about? Who is this helper? We need this helper. We need it right now. And he's saying that there's a promise of this Holy Spirit that will be there for you. Now, what, who is the Holy Spirit? First of all, let me say this. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not an it. It's a he. He is one of the persons of the Godhead, one of the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God. He is spirit. He has will. He has emotions. We can grieve him. We can listen to him. But he is not an it. Please do not refer to him as an it. Jesus calls him a he. 
He uses a personal male pronoun. He, the parakletos. Parakletos means helper. That's the word that we're going to see here in John chapter 14. Jesus says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First of all, let me just put that as an aside here. If you love Jesus, you're going to do what he wants you to do. People say, well, I love God, and you're living a life of sin. You're not doing what Jesus wants you to do. You really don't know who Jesus is. You think you're going to heaven when the reality is you're going to hell. You want to see and test yourselves whether you are in the faith. Are you seeking to be obedient? Seeking to be obedient, meaning you're seeking to yield your life. I'm not saying that you've done everything perfectly. I'm saying is your life in the trajectory toward holiness and God? He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, the word there, parakletos, is the Greek word. It's a compound word. Para, to come alongside of, and kletos is like the helper. Now, uh, in 2009, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And uh, when you train for the marathon, you run different intervals of distances to to build up to 26.2 miles, which is how long the marathon is. And so when you get two weeks out before the race itself, you run 20 miles. You never run 26.2 until the day of, okay, because it's like a letdown. It's hard to do that again. So you run 20 miles, and you still have this goal in front of you when you get to the last 6.2 miles that you have to run. So I'm running the Chicago Marathon, and I'm pretty tired. It's hot. I'm a big guy. I'm not a, a, a runner by any stretch of the definition. And I'm plugging along, and I'm just thinking about finishing. I'm so tired. You've been running for like three or four hours. Okay, and or walking, you're just moving your feet. You're getting tired, and I had one of my former students who's become a close friend of mine. He had been monitoring my progress because you put a they put a computer chip in your shoe that monitors where you go throughout the race. You can't cheat, but they know where you're at and they can get texts. And so he met me at mile marker 20, and he came through the barrier and he came right alongside me when I was most tired, wanted to quit. He's like, "Come on, let's do this. We got 6.2 miles to go. Come on." come on, let's do this. And so he came alongside me to encourage me. And then my, my feet got lighter and I got a little breath of fresh air and he's, he's there with me to help me on. And that's the idea of the Holy Spirit is when we're tired, we want to give up. We have someone there that's our biggest fan cheering us saying, come on, keep following, keep following. I'm going to convict you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to bring to your remembrance what Jesus taught. I'm going to push you on to righteousness, to accomplish things that you wouldn't be able to think that you would do. See, I'm going to help you get through suffering in a way that you didn't know. I'm going to show myself to you that I'm here with you. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now notice this, to be with you, forever. Not just a one-time thing, to indwell you for error. And he is the spirit of truth. He's going to lead you into all truth, not error. We have to be on guard against error, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world, the the fallen world who is anti-God, who does not know who God is, does not understand who the Holy Spirit is because you have to know who Jesus is to understand the Holy Spirit. He says, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Now, this is amazing. For he dwells with you. And remember, he's talking to the apostles. He's dwelling with you, but he will dwell in you. It's a future word. He's going to come in and indwell his people forever. So at this moment, he's with them. But then there's going to come a moment where he goes within them and in us, helping us to embody the gospel and truths of who Jesus is is. And he gives a bigger explanation about him. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. 
but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, he's going to teach you how to live. He's going to convict you and direct you as you continually surrender to God and show you everything what I taught and how to apply it into your life. He will bring to remembrance the teachings of Jesus. Now, where does the Spirit come from? We read in John chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send in... Send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. He will testify about me. He will connect the world about me. He will draw you to me. The Spirit of God bears testimony to the words of Jesus, but that's not all. Look at John chapter 16, verse 4 through 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So they're sad. Jesus is like, I'm going to be leaving you. They're really sad. They want Jesus there. But he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I leave. Because unless I go, the Holy Spirit can't come and dwell in you. That's why he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. If I do not go away, the the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment about who Jesus is and give them a dreadful feeling that the world is coming to an end and that their sins will be judged. The Spirit would come upon them. That is the Spirit that Jesus was testifying about. Jesus commanded the disciples to wait for this promise to be fulfilled. As I said before, it's not the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit at work in the life of His people. The disciples were to stay in Jerusalem, ground zero for persecution and a hard thing for them to do. And it's hard to wait on God's promises to be fulfilled. And they had to exercise patience, and so too must we. We must exercise patience as we wait for God to act. Now we're going to get to, in uh, the next few weeks, on how we interact with the Spirit and what the actual baptism of the Spirit is and is not. There's a great deal of confusion on who He is and what He does. We must make sure that we are thinking biblically and what that baptism might mean. But here, we still have this understanding that we need to wait on God, and that's never easy promises are given, and we might believe them and want to follow them, but then circumstances creep in and life shifts, giving us anxiety because we hadn't considered the situation that we're in, and then we rationalize that God must not know or care about what we are going through, and then we take matters into our own hands and mess everything up. The disciples waited because they had seen Jesus. They figured, if I see him, he's really resurrected, I can wait on what he wants me to do and what he wants me to go through. So Jesus gave them a mission, and he gives us one too, and we have to rely on God's power to do it. John baptized with water to show that they were turning from sin to God, and they had passed from judgment to life. But here they were baptized with the Holy Spirit because they needed God's power to accomplish God's mission to reach the world and expand the kingdom of God in the hearts of men. It has been said that if you can accomplish God's mission without God's Spirit, that it's not God's mission you are accomplishing. There are things that we can do in our flesh and in our own strength, but not here. 
Here we find that our strength is dried up rather quickly. It can only be by God's power that can help us stand strong, resist temptation, sacrifice ourselves, get out of our comfort zones, and tell other people about Jesus. We have to be divinely endowed with a power that takes us beyond ourselves, who multiplies our words and transforms our actions so that it can have a lasting impact on others. Here's what I mean. When I was in... uh, 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 when I was in Nagpur, India, and I was preaching to a conference of pastors, 1,600 pastors and leaders that were there, uh, I had the opportunity of interacting with uh, Jill and Stuart Briscoe. Uh, they are in their 80s now, had a very, uh, very influential ministry, still do, but probably reached its zenith in the 1980s at a, um, Elmbrook Church in Wisconsin. It was the largest in church in Wisconsin. He'd taken it from a church of 300 to 7,000. Uh, she has her own magazine. She's written books that are all over the world. I mean, they're very influential people. And I had the opportunity to just minister alongside them and just watch them and learn from them and interact with them. And God brought a really cool illustration as I watched Jill Briscoe, who is 80 years old, speak to this crowd of 1,600 leaders. And she got up to speak, and Jill's an amazing storyteller. I mean, she is gifted by the Holy Spirit, and she's British, which makes me really want to pay attention because I love her accent. And when she speaks, she's talking and sharing, and then the power goes out, which happens a lot. Um, And the power goes out, and suddenly this woman who had this amazing gift, amazing talent, you can't hear her. You can't hear her very well. And the crowd starts to murmur. The crowd gets murmuring because they can't hear this 80-year-old woman. And then the power comes back on, and then once again her voice is now amplified. Now here's, here's the spiritual connection. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, our voices are amplified and our gifts and our talents are then going to those that we would not think they would go to. But when we are ministering in the flesh, we've got nothing. And it can only be heard right here. But when we're in the Spirit, we're multiplied. It's a great picture. Even here is this 80-year-old woman at the time. And, And when she is filled with the Spirit, boom! People are hearing her from all over. It's not about her ability then. It's God's ability that made her voice known. And her natural talent, it only went this far. But it's in the Holy Spirit that it's multiplied. See, when you are ministering in the Spirit of God, God multiplies your ministry, multiplies your influence. And things that you didn't realize and impacts that you were making, God is doing on his own. I've had the opportunity to be in ministry for a long time by God's grace and I've got to interact. I sometimes get discouraged because I look back over ministry and I say, how have I, been, have I impacted people? Have I, have I spoken the message to people? And, and then I think that my work has been in vain. And then I'll have someone come alongside and talk to me at just the right moment. And they said, Travis, you had no idea. You said this. And I don't remember saying it. Because you know what it was? It wasn't me that was really doing it. It was God doing it. Because what I had done was just surrendered. And that's what we have to do. That's my question for you. Are you surrendering to God so that his Holy Spirit can work in and through you. And that means you have to take up your cross and die to yourself and take in the things of God to be in the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Spirit of God means to take in the things of God, which means taking his word. You cannot live a holy life without knowing and applying his word. And surrender yourself. It's impossible to do. You'll just be a moral person. You have to have the Spirit of God, and you have to take in the things of God. I'm not saying you have to be a theologian. I'm not saying you have to be able to read. You don't even have to be able to read. Someone can recite to you the stories and the truths that you can memorize and hold on to. 
But are you taking in the things of God? Are you being with God's people? Are you really wanting to be used of Him? Are you really participating in this divine startup that God has called and saved you to be a part of? And if not, what's keeping you from it? I think, you know, we talk about the devil being at work in the world. We see him in other countries. We see it in great violent acts. But I believe the, Satan is at his best when he's at, and he's most coercive is when he's working through our comforts and our pleasures and our busyness and good things. Because that is where we are subtly lulled into a state of spiritual sleep is that our mind is busy with everything and not the right thing. I feel that in my own life. I get up and I would flip through my phone and I just hit the ground running and I had to get the kids to school and you got to get breakfast ready and you got to get dressed and the next thing you know your day's already spiraling out of control and you're already tired because you didn't get a lot of sleep. Anybody testify on that one? Okay, we know what that's like. And I had to make an effort to recalibrate my life and go back to what I had known and I had done, but I'd let busyness creep in. At first it just was a one or twice thing and so I had to go back and go back to what was my foundation. And this is my foundation. I get up earlier, not a ton earlier, and I get a cup of coffee, open the Word of God, lay down, I got a pillow, sit in front of a fan, open the Word of God, I read from the Psalms, I read a proverb, I go reading five chapters of the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Now, sometimes I don't get through all that. I wait until God speaks truth to me. And then when God speaks truth, it might be in the Psalm that I read, it could be in the proverb, it could be in both. If I have time, it might be 30, 40 minutes, I understand that's a lot of time, but you make... You make a priority for those things that are important to you. And so I made this a priority. And I noticed that God started giving me peace. I started, I'm not caring. I mean, I care what's going on in the world, but I wasn't stressed out all the time. You know, it's that whole saying that Corey Tinboom said. You look at the world, you get distressed. You look within, you get depressed. You look at Jesus, and you'll be blessed. And that's what I would do. And I started to do that, and my stress level went down. And I noticed my spiritual level increased. And that's when God starts taking over and magnifying words to transform hearts and minds. To show that we are participating in the divine startup, not by how many people we reach, not by the miraculous abilities that we might have, but embodying within ourselves the message of Jesus and showing the amount of his grace and His power in our lives as we continually surrender and give ourselves over so that He might take it and send us into places and into the people that we didn't even know we were impacting for His glory and our joy. And the only way that this begins, by the way, is if you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, then what I'm saying to you today is meaningless to you. You have to know Jesus first. You have to believe in what He has done on the cross for your sins. That's the first step that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried and he rose again for your justification, which means that it's just as if you never sinned in the sight of God. That he gives his power within you to help you live and be a participant within this divine startup, embodying within yourself the very glory of God. But it has to be beginning, it begins with believing and receiving him and then learning what it means to walk in his kingdom and be a citizen of that kingdom for the glory of his name. So if you need to receive him, then you need, to, you need to call on the name of the Lord. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I don't presume that you're saved just because you're a Christian, you carry a Bible, and you show up at church. You're a Christian when you surrender.
and believe what he's done in the cross and in his resurrection. And then if you were a person, though, that you said, I've become disobedient, I've been a Christian that's turned away, I have backslidden, then you need to repent and turn around and ask God to renew and forgive you and send you on a path of righteousness for his namesake.